several a couple of years ago, uh, Rich uh, Smith came and uh, was with us on a Sunday evening, and and I thought, wow, what a, what a communicator of the gospel of Christ. And so I was really excited several months ago when Richard and I were, were talking, and he mentioned to me that Rich and his family were going to be coming out. And I found that they were going to be coming out Labor, uh, Father's Day. And, uh, and I asked him, I said, do you, do you think your son would share with us on Sunday morning at Father's Day? It's asking a lot, but, uh, but what a blessing. Uh, he is the, the husband of Leah. He's the father of these four awesome boys. He's pastor of Calvary Chapel in Fraser Park, California. But when you leave this morning, you're going to know him as a brother who loves the Lord and a great communicator. Let's give a house of prayer welcome to Rich Smith. It is a blessing to be here with you guys this morning. Dad, happy Father's Day. As I was uh, telling first service uh, back home at, at uh, the fellowship where I pastor, we, we teach through the Bible on Sunday mornings. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I love it because every Sunday I know exactly where I'm picking up. I'm, I'm starting right where I left off last Sunday. Uh, so this is a little bit different for me. I'm not going to just blast you guys with where we left off last week in Fraser Park. Uh, but, you know, as I was thinking about Father's Day... Um, uh, you know, Lord, what is it? How would you like to minister to us at, on Father's Day? Uh, you know, I, I recognize that Father's Day is, is not always the easiest day for all of us. Uh, I know in first service, you know, there are some individuals just sharing, you know, that it's a difficult time because uh, there's a lot of people in the room who are missing their dads. Their dads aren't with them anymore. And uh, there's some who are thinking, you know, I never really had the dad that others may have had. Um, but we praise the Lord that each and every one of us have a very good Heavenly Father. And um, as we open up the Word this morning, I'm going to be sharing with you from 1 Kings chapter 2. If you want to open up your Bibles, you can do so. Um, Power up your your tablet, turn on your phone, however it is that you follow along in the Word of God. Uh, But as we take a look at 1 Kings chapter 2, we're going to be looking primarily at the first four verses. uh, And just to give you a little bit of background what's happening here, Um, King David, the greatest king in the history of Israel, has lived a long, full life. Uh, His days are coming to a close. Um, Just a little bit of background. There there has been a struggle for the throne um, amongst some of his different sons. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 1 begins with one of those power play struggles with a son by the name of Adonijah. Now, Adonijah has lost some of his older brothers. Uh, One of them, Absalom, lost him uh, because of his attempt to overthrow the kingdom and even drive King David out and and take the throne from him. Um, But Adonijah was not a king whom, or was not the son of David, whom the Lord had chosen to be the next king of Israel. To the contrary, the Lord had chosen Solomon. Solomon was not the oldest son of David. He was not next in line according to uh, the methods of man, but he was the one whom God had chosen. And so uh, because of, of the, the, the power plays going on um, over the throne, uh, Adonijah's off to the side. Uh, I think he's dead and buried, actually. But um, Solomon has taken the throne during David's reign. Before David dies, he's able to make the public announcement that Solomon is going to be the next king. He actually crowns him king. 
uh, goes through the whole coronation process. And so as we begin chapter two, Solomon is the king of Israel in the place of his father, David. But David is still alive. He's just at an age where his days are coming to a close. When we look at these four verses, we're looking at the conversation or the speech, if you will, that King David gives to his son Solomon as David is preparing to depart. And not to depart the throne, but to depart this lifetime. And so if you'll open your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it reads, Now the days of David drew near, and he should die. And he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Verse 4, that the Lord may fulfill his word, which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Verse 4 there, that last verse, uh, just kind of summarize that for you. That's commonly referred to as the Davidic covenant. It's the promise that God made to King David uh, when he told David, he says, if you will walk in my ways, if you will obey my commands, uh, if if you will make me your priority all your days, he says, and I'm making this promise to you that there will always be a son of David on the throne of Israel. The conditions of this promise uh, were based upon the obedience of David and each of David's sons. And so, so long as David and, and the next king after him, his son, would be obedient to the Lord, there would always be a king uh, from the line of David on the throne of Israel. Now, sadly, uh, that, that covenant was broken, not by the Lord, but rather by Solomon. And so as Solomon is coming here, he's receiving this speech from his dad uh, about how he's going to go forth, how he's going to be a good king, how he's going to be a prosperous king. Sadly, Solomon did not take heed to the counsel that his father gave him, but it's also the counsel that the Lord gave him directly. And we might hit on that just a little bit later. But so as we look at this, the key to understanding this passage, or at least our focal point this morning, is there at the tail end of verse 3, where it says that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Uh, I'm, I'm not a big preacher on prosperity of this is what you need to do to go forth and be you know, healthy and wealthy and wise. Uh, the wise part's good. Uh, but as David is speaking to his son, he's basically telling him, son, I've done this thing of being a king. And now this is what you need to know in order to be a good king. As we, as we go through this, we're just going to look at this verse by verse as we go through. So we're going to get a little Bible study here this morning. Uh, again, uh, verse 1, it says that David, uh, the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon. So he's charging him, he's exhorting him with this saying, verse 2, I go the way of all the earth, be strong therefore, and prove yourself a man. I'm sure that this verse, verse two, has been used for a variety of men's retreats throughout history. You know, it's kind of like, go forth and prove yourself a man. We live in a day where, you know, masculinity is kind of like this big question mark in a lot of people's minds. And, and most of the men in this room are probably thinking, not in my mind, there's no question mark about it, okay? Uh, but, but we're living in a time where our headlines are just marked by, you know, gender identity. It's this crisis in the lives of our culture, uh, hopefully not in the lives of those who belong to Jesus Christ. Um, but as we look at this issue of masculinity, you know, we've kind of got two bookends or two ends of the spectrum. 
One of them, we, we see people struggling uh, with this attack uh, of, you know, that produces the effeminate man. You know, it's, it's the man that's just not masculine. It's the man who's questioning, you know, was I really designed to be a man and so forth. But then on the other end of that spectrum, uh, we've got the historical, you know, macho guy. You know, we've got kind of the John Wayne, uh, and I think that a lot of times young men are raised uh, with this expectation from their dad that you need to go forth and you need to prove yourself a man. And I just want to clarify right here that I do not believe that that is what David is communicating to his son. I don't think that David is telling his son, you need to go out and prove yourself a man. I know that we look at that and we see that word prove or show yourself a man, um, but I think what David is getting at here is he's saying, son... I want to give you counsel about what it means to be a good man. And as much as our context in this passage is about one king, the father, David, speaking to his son, Solomon, the next king, the text itself does not say that this is what you need to do to be a good king. It says in the end of verse 3 that this is what you need to do to prosper. And so I believe that as we're looking through this passage, and yes, it's Father's Day, and yes, I think that it's appropriate for Father's Day, this passage and what we're going to be looking at today applies to each and every one of us in this room. I'm going to carry on in the context of a father speaking to his son, but for all of the ladies in the room, for the young, the old alike, the parents, uh, the children, if you have a heart for the Lord, this passage applies to you. And so as David is speaking to his son, He says to him in verse 3, he says, Keep the charge of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. As Solomon is receiving this instruction, this exhortation about how to prosper as a man, how to prosper as a king, David's counsel is really simple. Keep God the top priority. All of this passage could be summarized in that way, but David doesn't just say that. He starts off with what I believe are five points right there in our passage, Uh, and the first point is to walk in his ways. I believe that David is communicating a general overarching theme. You know what? If you're going to be pleasing to the Lord, you're going to have to walk in his ways. He's going to bring about some specific points. He's going to use some specific words as he develops uh, this message to his son. But when he says to walk in the ways of the Lord, he's basically saying you're going to have to live the way that God lives. You're going to have to walk the way that God walks. You're going to have to think God thoughts. You're going to want to love the things that the Lord loves. And you're also going to need to despise the things that the Lord despises. This is where we come into a conflict as human beings. Because God's nature is a perfect, holy, righteous nature. And yours isn't. Mine isn't. We all were brought into this world with the nature of our fathers. All the way back to Adam. It's the Adamic nature. It's the nature of Adam that's been passed down as our heritage, and that is the legacy of a sinner. It's the legacy of a rebel. It's the legacy of a man who was given simple instructions in the garden, but departing from the word of God. He went from being the prized creation to being the fallen man. And that's what each and every one of us have inherited a sinful, fleshly, selfish nature. And so 
uh, as we look at this, you know, God's nature is perfect. Ours is not. And so to walk in the ways of the Lord does not come naturally. Please don't think that walking in the ways of the Lord is something that just happens. Sometimes we have a tendency of looking at the people around us. I mean, there's someone sitting next to all of you, right? Do you guys sit in the same place every Sunday when you come in here? You're laughing, but you're not answering the question. Do you kind of do that or not? Okay, yeah, you know. Who's sitting someplace different? You're like, I've never sat in this pew before. Okay, yeah, my family and a couple visitors maybe, yeah. But, you know, um, we, we, we have this tendency um, of thinking that the people around us have got it all together until you get to know them, Right? Yeah, once you get to know them, you realize, man, they are a mess. You know, I thought that I was a wretched sinner, but now I've really gotten to know Rich, and man, that, he makes me feel a lot better about myself, right? Uh, but the reality is, is that we can fall into, um, I don't know, kind of like a game of charades where we're always trying to put forth the presentation. We're always trying to make sure that we're doing the right thing. Uh, that's important if it's done with the right motive. But there can be this tendency to say, okay, this is what I'm told to do and therefore this is what I need to do or at least I need to do the best that I can do to give the best presentation that I can give. David is speaking to his son and when he says that you need to walk in his ways, he's saying you need to be godly. And sometimes we receive that as a, as a word, an exhortation, instruction, but sometimes it just lands like a big burden because you're thinking, be godly. Are you kidding me? I'm not godly. How in the way am I going to pull this thing off? I mean, I do the best that I can, and it's, it's fascinating. When we're ministering or speaking with non-believers, you know, we'll ask them, you know, well, you know, you're not a believer, but what's going to happen with you when you die? And they go, well, you know, I just hope that my good outweighs the, the bad, you know, and, and we hear it all the time. Some of us have said it here. Uh, it's very theologically incorrect. Our good will never outweigh the bad. That's not how we make it into God's graces. Certainly not how we make it into heaven. But uh, looking at this, walking in the ways of the Lord, hear me when I say this. God does not want this list or the whole list of scripture to be received as such. A list. He wants us to receive the instructions that David is seeking to pass down to his son. And that is that your walk with the Lord is the most important facet of your existence. You're inheriting, David is speaking to his son, you're inheriting the greatest king kingdom in the Middle East. David had gone forth and had pretty well conquered or intimidated all of the nations of the Middle East in his day. There were some who rose up out of fear and insecurity and tried to pick battles with David. <clears throat> they got annihilated. The kingdoms in the Middle East that didn't engage into outright battle with David recognized, you know what, we would do well to send him a gift on an annual basis that was called tribute. We're going to send him this gift and just maintain the peace because this is not a guy, this is not a king, this is not a kingdom that we want coming against us. And so Solomon inherits a kingdom of general peace, a whole lot of prosperity that will continue to grow during his reign and his rule. But of all of that, and this is the mighty warrior king David, he's telling him, son, the most important thing in your existence is your walk with the Lord, to walk in his ways. You might say, well, what exactly does it look like to walk in the ways of the Lord? And the answer is found directly in Jesus Christ, isn't it? I mean, Jesus is the incarnation of our heavenly father. Colossians 1.15 says he's the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the express image of his person. You don't ever have to wonder how God walks. You just look at Jesus. 
Several years ago, there was this big campaign. You'll remember it. Uh, It was marked with a whole lot of marketing, bumper stickers, T-shirts, and rubber band bracelets that said, what would Jesus do? And uh, in the midst of that, I I remember at the time just kind of being disgusted, to be honest, you know, because there's something about watching Christianity get marketed that just doesn't settle well with me. You know, when someone's making a bunch of money off of selling merchandise, off of a cliche statement, it just, I don't know, I just kind of fight against that a lot of times. But uh, the, the... the core of the message was a phenomenal message. It was answering this very question. If I'm going to walk in the ways of the Lord, what does that look like? And the simple answer, you just look unto Jesus. How did Jesus respond? Who did Jesus hang out with? How did he love? When was he stern? Anger. When was Jesus angry? He was. What was he angry about? Discovering the heart of God, the mind of God. It's the key to walking in his ways. As we move on to the next four points, which are very specific points, David says to Solomon, he says, that you're going to need to keep his statutes. And as you look at this, keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, you might think that these are all speaking about the same thing. Excuse me. But they're not. David uses four different Hebrew words as he's speaking to his son. He's not stuttering. He's not driving home an emphasis. You know, he's not saying, obey, 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 obey. He's saying four completely different things, but they're all related. And in fact, they're pretty close together. But I want us to take a look at those four points that he makes and identify the distinctions of them. And so the first one, he says, to keep his statutes. That Hebrew word for statutes there literally means prescribed ordinances. Uh, It can also be translated as traditions or rites, something that's been established previously. It's Father's Day. You may have traditions for Father's Day. I don't know what you do on Father's Day. Maybe you barbecue. Maybe you go down to the lake. Uh, Maybe you go to church, and that's why you're here. This is our tradition. It's the only reason I'm here. It's Father's Day. Dad tells me to go to church. We go to church. Amen. I'm glad you're here. But as we look at our traditions, as we look at those ordinances, as we look at these rites, uh, what David is communicating to his son, if you're going to prosper, he's saying you're going to have to take heed to the things that the Lord speaks about, the things that the Lord values. When we look at this idea of his statutes, the prescribed ordinances, just think for a minute about prescriptions, okay? You go to visit the doctor, the doctor says, oh yeah, blah, 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 blah. He scribbles something down. He says, here, take this down to the pharmacy. And uh, you know, the the journey from the doctor's office to the pharmacy, just downstairs or down the hallway, is usually a pretty short journey. You don't get a whole lot of time to think about your prescription that has just been handed to you, right? And so you're kind of walking that. I, I feel like, you know, if the doctor gives me a prescription, I've got a little bit of a phobia. I'm just going to share that with you right now. But, but as I'm walking down the hallway, I feel like there's security guards watching me to make sure that I actually go into the pharmacy and get this thing fulfilled. You know, it's kind of like, you're going to have to get this fulfilled. There's no options. You've got to get this thing fulfilled. So you feel pressured. You go in there. You know, you, you hand it to them. You know, you pay money. You go home with this box. And it's got this big pamphlet, you know, of all of the warnings on it, all of the side effects. And so you go home and you start reading through the fine print if you can. And you might make the mistake of going online and researching Whatever it was that was prescribed for you, right? But so as you check this thing out and you're looking at all of the side effects, you're thinking, oh, gee, man, what am I going to do? You're thinking, I'm not sure that I really want to take that thing. And right about then, you're trying to decide, do I know more than my doctor knows? Okay? Now, I'm not going to get into whether you know more than your doctor knows. You can decide that. You do whatever you want to do with all the prescriptions that the doctor gives you. But the question here today is whether you know more than what God knows. Because when God gives his prescriptions... Just like your doctor, he expects you to take it. He expects you to receive it. Do what you want to do with your doctor's orders. 
But when it comes to the Lord, he gives his prescriptions. Now, uh, this isn't a law. This isn't a commandment that he's giving. That's going to be covered later on when he gets to the laws, when he gets to the commandments. But this is almost like God's suggestions. He's saying, hey, I'm trying to help you here. I'm trying to, to take care of you. And this is what I need you to do. This is what I want you to do. It's his statutes, his prescribed ordinances. We might have a tendency of looking at this and saying, well, you know, that's just the way that it's always been done. Christians have always done this thing. It's the tradition. It's the rites. It's the way that it's always been. And some of us just kick against it for that very reason. We say, you know, I'm not going to do it just because that's the way it's always been done. I'm not going to do it. But when it's the Lord saying, listen, this is what I have for you. This is what I want for you. We enter into a very real wrestling match whereby we have to decide, am I going to receive what God has for me even if he's not telling me this is the law? Even if it's not his commandment, am I willing to receive it? Because if God speaks to you and he says, this is what I desire for you, just imagine that God is speaking to you individually. He has a message for you. If God has a message for you, does that come with any value to you? Most of us don't go through the day expecting to have the old man of God, the prophet, come walking up to it and say, thus saith the Lord, and he utters a word of prophecy to us. Most of us are not expecting that to happen. But if that were to happen, if God were to give you a direct revelation, maybe it comes by an angel, Gabriel walks into the room, there's a vision by night, however it happens, Do you think that that's an important message to receive? I would think so. I mean, if God's taking the time to speak to me directly, I think it's probably important. And I'd want to receive whatever it is. But what if what he has to say is something you've heard before? Oh, yeah, well, I've heard that. Yeah, I I know. I mean, think about Solomon here. His father is speaking to him. Son, this is what you need to know. He's referring to, again, the promise of God. If you will walk in his ways, he will bless you, son. And your son will sit on this throne one day. And if your grandson walks in the ways of the Lord, then his son will sit on this throne one day. This is God's promise to us. All we need to do is walk in his ways. Sadly, Solomon's going to blow it. His son will take a throne, but it will not be the throne of Israel that he will rule over. He'll rule over one tribe, the tribe of Judah, because of the breaking of that covenant. Because for Solomon, his passions got the better part of him. As the text reveals in 1 Kings, his love for women actually opened a door for a love for those women's false gods, which came in and led him astray. And he departed from the true and the living God, failing to follow his father's advice here. What's really sad is this. In addition to what David is telling his son here now, the Lord speaks to Solomon two other times directly in his life. Directly. Not through, you know, scriptures, reading the Bible, but God speaks directly to Solomon. And on both of those occasions, you know what he says? He tells him exactly what his father is telling him here. He says, if you walk in my ways you will prosper and you will not fail to have a son sitting upon the throne of Israel. His father's counsel 
two direct words from the Lord. About 20 years after the first time, the Lord speaks to him again. Tells him, my word is still true. You walk in my ways, you'll be good to go. But he failed to receive it. Sometimes I wonder if we fail to receive the word of God simply because it's familiar. I've heard that before. I mean, how many times has someone told you something and you said, oh, I know. (laughs) Yeah, you know, but are you going to do it? You know, that's the question. Yeah, you know this, but are you doing anything with what you know? Solomon knew all of this, but yet his father and his God told him over and over again, this is what you need to do. And yet the very things that his father and that the Lord had spoke to him directly were the very areas whereby he failed. Walk in his ways, keep his statutes, And then he says next, he says to keep his commands. And this is where, this one takes no uh, explanation. The commands are the laws, this is it. God's saying, this is what you've got to do, this is mandatory. We won't spend a lot of time expanding on that. But then he goes on from his commands and he says his judgments. Uh, And when we think about the Lord's judgments, these are God's decisions. So think for a minute just right now of a judge sitting on the bench. He's got his black robe on. He's, you know, got the gavel in his hand and everything. Uh, And the judge is going to bring forth his judgment. He's going to bring forth his decision. We might think guilty or non-guilty, but typically with that guilty, non-guilty verdict, if it's a guilty verdict, we expect some kind of a sentence. And so his decision might be 90 days of community service, whatever it is. That's the judge's decision. And the Lord brings about his decisions in our lives as well. The question is whether we receive them or not whether we're excited that the Lord is making decisions. Now, I'll be honest, most of the decisions that the Lord makes in my life are not decisions that I would have made. The Lord makes decisions in each and every one of our lives. And oftentimes, they're not the decisions that we would choose because they're not comfortable. We pray about certain circumstances. Those circumstances may not necessarily work out the way we wanted them. But at the end of the day, we say, well, you know what? The Lord made his decision. And hopefully we're willing to receive that. That's what David is telling his son. You need to receive the Lord's decisions in your life. As we're seeking out the mind of the Lord, the will of God, we've got decisions that we're having to make. And so we're praying, uh, you know, we're, we're seeking the Lord out in prayer. We may be fasting. We may be seeking counsel from different people who we trust and respect in our lives. But we've got this big decision, whatever it may be. It may be to move to another town. It may be to take a different job. It may be to refinance the house. Whatever it is, the decision is, is we're bringing it before the Lord. But the Lord makes his decision. And sometimes when the Lord makes his decision, and it's not the decision that we were hoping for, that we were expecting, that we were wanting, we think that somehow God has betrayed us. But that is not the case. That is the Lord's decision. And David is telling his son, receive those decisions because you have a good heavenly father. And if your God is good, and this is his decision, then this decision is therefore what? It's good. This is a good decision because the God who made this decision for you is a good God. God is not out to strike you down. He's not, out to, he's not against you. I was having a conversation with one of my boys a few weeks ago. Uh, we were in the car driving along, and uh, we were just talking about, uh, you know, the word and, and God's instructions and so forth. And it was one of those moments where in the midst of our conversation, I could tell, okay, uh, you know, the conversation is kind of taking that turn of, boy, it seems like God has an awful lot of rules. <laughs> and I started to share what all of us need to be reminded of at times. And that is that, yes, while the Lord has revealed a lot in his word that comes across as rules, 
The only reason that he's ever spoken them, the only reason he's ever delivered them is because he's trying his best to take care of us. He's trying to shepherd us. He's trying to guide us. He's not trying to rob us from a good time. He's not trying to rain on our parade. He's looking to protect us from the things that we think we might want but might ultimately be our undoing. The Lord makes decisions in each and every one of our lives. No one chooses cancer. No one chooses any illness. But the Lord makes decisions and allows difficult, painful circumstances into our lives. Those are his decisions. Why he brings about those decisions? That's the mind of God. We pray, we seek. Sometimes he does it for his glory. Sometimes he does it because he wants to bring about the miraculous healing. Sometimes it's the journey that he wants us to go on. I found that difficult circumstances oftentimes come back to one common denominator, and that is that he simply wants to grow our faith. And I don't mean grow our faith in such a way that I can go forth and pick which mountains I want to move where. If that were the case, I would be living on the beach. Every mountain between me and there, they'd be moved. But the Lord wants to teach us in regards to faith how to trust him, what it means to really trust the Lord through these difficulties. I was just listening during announcements and prayer requests, a whole variety of prayer requests and circumstances. I think it's neat that you guys as a congregation share those things. We do the same thing back at our church. Our church is is a bit smaller than here. And so as a church gets larger and larger, it becomes a little more cumbersome to share every prayer request of every health need of everyone in the congregation. But that is what family does, isn't it? Yeah. But as we encounter those circumstances, I believe that the Lord is just saying, are you going to trust me through this? Not trust me for your healing necessarily, but trust me for whatever it is that I have decided. David is telling his son, If you want to prosper, then you're going to have to, yes, keep his statutes, his commandments, but also you're going to have to receive his decisions. You're going to have to receive his judgments upon your life. And then the last one he has here is his testimonies. How many of you have a testimony? I'm not going to ask you to start sharing them right now. Um, How many of you are born-again believers? (laughs) How many of you don't know what a born-again believer is? Just thought I would ask, just in case. Um, Okay, so you have your testimony, and your testimony should go something along the lines of, this is where I was, I met Jesus. Oh, that was great. There's a picture of him right on the back wall. Um, So this is where I was, I met Jesus, and this is where I am. Kind of the general basics, right? This is how I got saved. This is how I became who I am today. This is the road, the journey, my experience of what God has done in my life. Now, your testimony isn't just about how you got saved. Well, it was 1978 and Billy Graham was in the stadium. You know, it's not just that. Your testimony is you bearing witness of what God has done. And yes, the day of your salvation was the biggest moment or should be the biggest moment in your life because that is where you were eternally forever changed. You were made a new creation at that very moment. You may have walked out of the stadium or walked out the back of the church, and you may not have necessarily felt different, or you may have been walking two feet off the ground. Who knows? Everyone I talk to has a different experience of what they felt when they got saved. 
But if there's genuine faith at work when, and you uh, exert that faith towards Jesus Christ, trusting him for your salvation, then you are saved. You are made an adopted child of God at that very moment. You've been the recipient of God's love and you have experienced God's love right then. And then the rest of your testimony is everything that God has done since then. Well, when we come to God's testimony or his testimonies in our passage, this isn't the way that God got saved. God doesn't need to get saved, right? He's not telling you, this is what I've done for myself. That's not what his testimonies are. But what his testimonies are in this context, these are his admonitions or his warnings. This is God saying, hey, listen, I got to give you a little bit of a heads up over here. Again, he did it for Solomon directly twice. He might have thought it was a casual thing that God speaks to you directly. He might have thought, you know, Lord, that's fine that you're telling me this, but my dad told me that when I was a kid, and so I've got that one covered. Have you ever found that the Lord speaks to you the same message multiple times? Yeah. Man, those are the messages to not ignore. When God's trying to get something through your thick skull, it oftentimes will come by repetition. We hear it. We don't like it. Usually that's the first response. Oh, I don't like that. Sometimes we try to justify it. We spiritualize it and say, Satan, get behind me. You know? Little do we realize it's the Holy Spirit who's in front of us. You know? And we're just thinking, I just don't like what you're having to say to me. Certainly, this must be the devil. It can't be God. He'd never inconvenience me. But... The Lord's warnings are oftentimes not comfortable. But life without warnings leads us to a path of destruction, which is far less comfortable. His warnings, his admonitions. As we continue on, he's pointing out, you know, again, these four, these five points uh, that he is making here. And in verse four, it says that the Lord may fulfill his word, which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So again, a couple key ingredients that he's delivering right here in this verse. If your sons take heed to their way to walk before me, to walk before me. Think about this. Walking before the Lord. We had seen previously that we need to walk in his ways, but now he's saying to walk before me, to walk before the Lord. That's a bit more personal. That's not a, I'm here on earth and he's up in heaven, wherever that might be. That's a, he's here and I'm here and he's watching me. And I'm going to walk before him. I'm, I'm going to just give you a really lousy illustration, so bear with me. Remember when you were a kid, did you have a school play? Anyone? School play, school play. How many of you loved being in the school play? How many of you wish that it never happened, had never been invented? Nothing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, the school play is something, I'm, I'm sure that they have like banned them. I'm sure they're illegal by now because of the damage it causes to young children's minds or something, you know? Um, their self-esteem must be destroyed by school plays, right? That's kind of the thinking. But I just remember, you know, when I was a school play, there I was, I was in the crowd, you know, and I had one line that I had to say, I'm a flagpole sitter, how about you? That was it. That was my line. That's all I said. I had no idea what a flagpole sitter was, what, it, what it, the purpose was. That was my line. I practiced it over and over. The teacher got it in my head, obviously, because you're hearing about it this morning. But so, 
there's the school play. And so I just want you to imagine there's the big stage. It's empty. The audience is there. And let's just say that God's right about right where no one's sitting, right there in the middle, right there, okay? Everyone's around him there, okay? So God's kind of the key figure of the audience, and your job is to walk from the one side of the stage straight across the stage, and you're going to walk before him, okay? So everyone's lined up, and you're kind of watching the guys going across before you, and you're kind of thinking, boy, you know, I hadn't really thought this thing through. I mean, this is my big debut. I'm going to walk before the Lord, but I wonder how I'm supposed to do this thing. I mean, how am I supposed to walk before the Lord, you know? And so you're kind of watching and, you know, the guy, three guys in front of you, he goes across, lightning strikes. You're thinking, well, don't walk like that guy, right? (laughs) But so you're starting to give a second thought about this. So how am I supposed to walk before the Lord? You know, what do I do? You know, do I walk with confidence, you know? Do I walk like I did when I was a high schooler across the stage to get my diploma and do something really ridiculous? You know, what kind of a thing do I do as I'm walking before the Lord? Do I try to like walk humbly and kind of slouch across like as if I'm a really humble person? I'm not going to be proud. I'm going to be humble. No, my mom's in the back row. You know, she won't like that. You know, she's like, your posture, your posture. And so like, how is it that I'm supposed to walk before the Lord? Well, David answers this. And he says, you should walk before him in truth. God's not concerned with your strut. He's not concerned with the stride that you've got. But he is concerned that as you walk before the Lord, that you do so in truth. What that means is that as we walk before the Lord and our lives, well, I guess it is like a stage And the Lord and the heavenly host, they're the audience and they're watching. But here's the deal. Walking before the Lord in truth means that there is no duplicity. That we can't convince God that we're something that we're really not. There's nothing that we can hide. We can't pretend. The school play was just the school play. You may have been a good actor, but acting doesn't work when you're walking before the almighty, all-knowing God. There's just, you, you can't convince him of something that's not true. And so we need to walk before him in truth. Whether you like the truth or not, it's your only option. In society, we can get bound up with these expectations and trying to prove ourselves to the people around us. Sometimes even within marriage. We're trying to be the good husband or the submissive wife or whatever it is that we're trying to convince our spouse of that I'm going to be this thing. We don't really believe that about ourselves but we know that that's what we're supposed to be aiming for. And so we're trying to convince our spouse that, that we're something that we're really not. The same thing happens almost everywhere in our world. In the workplace, we're trying to convince our supervisors that we're this, that, and the other thing because if we don't convince them of that, we know there's no upward momentum for us. We're trying to convince our neighbors by the way that we keep our front yard the guys at the gym, whatever it is. But with the Lord, 
There's no convincing him. He knows everything. Check this out, Hebrews 4.12. It says that the word of God is living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. Listen carefully. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God not only knows your thoughts, he knows your intents. Ooh. I mean, that's one up on ourselves. We don't even know our own heart's intents oftentimes. But the Lord knows it. He knows what we're thinking and he knows why we're thinking it. The passage goes on in verse 13 and it says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's awkward. (laughs) So, just bear with me for a second. We're going to come back to that lousy illustration. It's about to get a lot worse. It's the stage. And you're just getting ready to come out from behind the curtain to walk across the Lord, before the Lord. But now you've got to do it naked. You know, it's like this is it's turning into a nightmare. You know, like how in the world am I going to do this? I, I shared it with first service. I'll share it with you guys. You know, I, do you guys have reoccurring night, dreams? You know, either your teeth fall out, you know, those types of things, right? I don't know if this is common amongst pastors or not, but I've had it twice in the ministry where I'm preaching, and on a Sunday morning, we have a wooden pulpit. We don't have this. I would, I would. I, I, I highly recommend solid structures, but yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching away on a Sunday morning, and, you know, it's our congregation, you know, we know everyone, we're all family, but then it's like, as I'm preaching, I look down, I'm like, I'm in my underwear, you know? I've got my shirt on, my shirt's there, but, I, but it's just like my underwear, I'm thinking, oh, no, how do I get out of this, you know? Just keep preaching, you know, just keep preaching, don't stop preaching, you know? The worst part about it is I wake up, and I'm thinking, how did I ever get up there in the first place without any pants on, you know? I'm like thinking these things through. But so there you are. You're having to cross the stage naked before the Lord. And you realize, okay, this is it. Like there's no hiding anything at this point. The manner in which you walk across the stage is going to be greatly influenced by who you're walking for. If you're walking as before the Lord, who is the key figure in the audience then you will do well. But our tendency is to walk the stage for the audience of man. We want to please the other individuals, whether it is the spouse, whether it's the employer, whether it's just our general concept of our reputation of what people think about us. But check this out. God knows you like no one else. You may not know him very well, but he knows you Because he created you. He knows your thoughts. He knows what drives you. He knows the motives behind your actions, the motives behind the thoughts that never make it into action. He knows all of these things about you. And here's the best part. That as you walk before him, completely naked, nothing to hide, nothing of your past is hidden, nothing of your fears has anywhere to hide, It's all revealed before him. Check this out. He adores you. He loves you. 
It's not because you're having the most embarrassing moment of your life and he's having pity on you. We have a God who knows everything about us and yet he chooses to love us. It's not because of who we are, what we've done, our resume. It's not even because of the way in which we walk that he loves us. The word of God reveals that Christ died for us while we were yet what? Sinners. This is a truth that I'm always reminding myself of. Not because I gotta get this verse down, but because as I dwell upon this truth, I realize, wait a minute, if the love of God is revealed through the sending and uh, sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, and that sacrifice, or let's just say his love was manifested that way while I was in utter rebellion against him, if when I was at my worst, God loved me, then how could the love of God ever fail me? How could I ever lose that love of God? If Christ died for me while I was a sinner, while I was running from God, hiding from God, shaking my fist at God, if he loved me then, then even now as I'm standing on the side of the stage thinking, how am I going to do this? How am I going to convince God? How am I going to impress God? Here's the deal, you don't need to. God is not won over by your performance. Yeah, we need to walk in his ways. We should take heed to his statutes. We should receive and abide by his commands. When he warns us, we would do well to take heed to his warnings. But we don't do all of those things in order to win his approval. We do all of those things because his approval has been won. He loves us. And that's why we love him back. David is telling his son, man, if you want to prosper, here's the key. And that's why we kind of finish up here as he says, not only are your sons to walk before him in truth, but then it finishes up with all their heart and with all their soul. They're to walk before God with everything they've got. That means that there can be no half-hearted walk with the Lord. Wholehearted. We talk about loving the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus stated that as the greatest commandment. He was referring back to the book of Deuteronomy, to the Shema, where uh, you know, that, was, that was the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God. We might look at that and say, oh yeah, that's what I need to do. I need to be more loving. I gotta love the Lord more, 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 more. Let me tell you something. If you're here today and you're struggling, you recognize, yeah, I I need a greater love for the Lord. I know that that's what he requires. I know that's the greatest commandment. I know that I need to do a better job of it. The secret to loving the Lord more is to meditate and dwell upon how much he loves you. That's what the word of God reveals. We love him because he first loved us. Our love for him, our service, our devotion is all a response to who he is and what he has done for us. I know that our tendency when we read through passages like this or almost any other passage, if you've been churched for a really long time, your tendency is to hear instructions. Do, do, don't do, 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 don't do, don't do. We think that Our relationship with God is based on two stone tablets with ten commandments. That's not the heart of God. 
The Apostle Paul revealed that the law, Ten Commandments, if you will, it was given to basically open up the eyes of individuals that they would realize, you know what, I've got a lot of problems. And when it comes to meeting God's expectations, I am a far cry from doing so. We all fall short of the glory of God. That's the purpose of the law, to show you you don't quite make it. Your good does not outweigh the bad. The purpose of it, Paul revealed it to be a tutor, that the law of God would lead us to the grace of God that we can only find in and through Jesus Christ. But if you've been churched for a long time, you hear these words, you hear about the grace of God, you hear about the love of God, you hear all of these things and you go, yeah, yeah, that's good, I've heard it, I've heard it, I've heard it. But yet, if you've been church for a long time, you might still fall prey, you might still fall victim to that mindset of I've got to do, I've got to do, I've got to do, and I've got to not do, not do, not do. And we can, who have been saved by grace, we can slip into this place of performance-oriented living before the Lord. And so we walk across the stage and we do our song and we do our dance, thinking that God's going to be impressed. I want to wrap up our time here today with two simple points for you of application. It comes from Galatians chapter 5. You can turn there if you want to. Galatians chapter 5. In verse 22, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. I just want to read it to you. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. We read that, we go, oh, that's great. But some of us will fall into that snare again and think, well, there's one more list that I fall short of. I'm just not good enough. I just, I need to be more of those things. I wish I was all of those things. But let me tell you something. What we just read here is a description of what? It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Aren't you glad that it doesn't say this is the fruit of you? This is your to-do list today? This is how you need to be. I know that we read this, we think, well, if this is the way that God is and we're to walk the way that God walks, then this is how we're to walk, this is how we're to be. And that's true. But this is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is a description of what God's like. And the phenomenal thing is that when an individual gives their life to Jesus Christ by faith, receives him as their savior, that the Holy Spirit moves right on into that individual and lives his life in and through that person. This is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Our position is kind of like just being the fruit stand. You know, we're just there. The fruit gets put out on us. It's getting a little weird, isn't it? (laughs) The fruit gets put out on display for all to see. It's not your fruit, though. It's his fruit. As he lives in and through us. As he has his way. Now, I don't want you to stop right there. I'm I'm hoping that you're catching the idea here that this isn't performance, works-oriented Christianity, that I've got to be, I've got to be, I've got to be. Check this out. That's the way that he is. But there's one other key part. Because all of us long for more of God to have his way in and through our lives. But there's one more facet of this equation. And it's right there in Galatians chapter 5. We've just read verses 22, 23, and then in the very next verse, verse 24, it says this, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If there's any one thing that I'm responsible for doing in the midst of this victorious Christian life, it is putting myself aside. I've got to crucify my flesh with its passions and its desires. That means the things that I have planned for my day, the things that I've planned for my life, my ambitions, 
they need to be brought into submission to Jesus Christ. My flesh, it needs to disappear. And I wish that it was that easy. (laughs) Did you notice the word that's used there? We have to do what to our flesh? Oh, there's nothing comfortable about that. Nothing convenient about crucifying our flesh, our selfish ambitions. But here's the reason why it's essential. As our flesh, as our selfish ambitions are eliminated, as they're crucified by faith in Jesus Christ, as we are taking our lives, our futures, our hopes, your afternoon, and submitting it unto the Lord, we have just emptied ourselves, making way for the Holy Spirit to fill us with himself. That is why these two verses go hand in hand. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, that's what God wants to manifest through us, and he will do that as we submit as that fruit stand, as we empty ourselves and say, God, here I am. Use me as you see fit. As you surrender your life to Jesus Christ on a moment-by-moment, hour-by-hour basis, It's not a one-time decision with Billy Graham in 1978. It's a decision here, now, and every moment of your existence. As you do that, the Holy Spirit has his way through you, and everyone around you is blessed by the fruit that they get to enjoy, manifested through your life, not of your doing, but of his presence. The Lord loves you wonderfully. I'm assuming that most of us here today have committed our life to Jesus Christ. I asked you to raise your hand and most of you did. No one raised their hand saying, I don't know what a born-again believer is. But I know this. Whether you're here today and you haven't entirely committed your life to Christ or whether you committed your life to Christ 45 years ago, I know this to be a fact. You and I need the Holy Spirit just as much today as we ever have and ever will. And so I'd like to pray for each and every one of us here, not individually, but as a group, for the Lord's Spirit to have his way in our lives. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we come to you. We each walk before you right now naked nowhere to hide and recognizing that we have nothing to hide we might feel like we do but we can't succeed in hiding from you and trying to deny those things that have been at work in our lives, whether it's been selfish ambition, whether it's been fear dominating us, whether it's been the skeletons of our closets that we hope no one ever finds, Lord, you see them. And you're not afraid for us. You see them And you want to shine your glorious light upon those very corners of our existence. You want to reveal things that have been hidden. And it's awkward for us. It's scary. 
some things that perhaps we promised and vowed no one would ever know. But you want to reveal them not to expose us to the world, but you want to reveal them so that you might set each and every one of us free from the burden of that past, the burden of those secrets, from the guilt and from the shame. I thank you, Lord, that you love us perfectly, wonderfully. And I thank you so much that you are not done working in any one of our lives here. You have plans for us. Oh, how you want to prosper us. Oh, how you want us to walk in all of your ways, being filled with your heart, with your mind, with your passion and compassion for the lost. Lord, have your way here today, I ask. Heal that which is broken. Set free that which has been trembling in fear. Expose every chain of bondage and break it, O oh Lord God, I pray. Have your way in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you.